0: Rose with a dragon by the sun. Two had wounds, they conquered one. Oh boy, and Jesus was his name, way. <laughs> uh, thank you, Zach. That's enough. If you'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven. And um so here have got a Church Bible, it's on page 1077, 1077. Back in the first Sunday in January when I was here, I said that what I'd like to do, God willing, whilst I was here preaching on Sunday evenings, was to look at faith from Hebrews chapter 11, but not just in the the. the theoretical way or as a particular subject, but look at faith and the people who are described in this chapter as having had faith. Various men and women are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as people of faith. And I do that so that we might see faith fleshed out, as it were, that it's real people. These people are real people are historical people. We have a record of them in the Bible. And uh, that makes us realize that faith is for real people like us. And some uh, weren't wonderful and glorious. Some know everything about them. Some are hardly unknown. and They're not all uh, great heroes in one sense. Some of them actually failed and failed miserably. And yet they did have this faith. Uh, in their God who never failed them. And so uh, we had a little bit of introduction to that chapter, to this chapter. And now I want to move on to the, the first person who is mentioned here as having faith. And so in verse uh, 3, we read, uh, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaks. So, One verse that describes Abel and his faith. And that's why I read from um, Genesis, so that we could see the context of this. Now, it's, it's a strange context, all right? It's a strange context, and... I'll explain in a moment why I say that. Because here are two brothers, all right? They're brothers, obviously, the first of Eve. And one, we are told, Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. Another, he was a tiller or a worker of the ground. He grew crops. That's all, we are told of them in verse 2. And then uh, it says, in the process of time, they both bring offerings to God. And one, who's a tiller, who works the ground, he's an arable farmer, he brings crops. The other one, shepherd, he kills a sheep or lamb and brings that to God. Now, here's the difficulty in a sense of my big question is, why did they do that? Why did Abel bring that? Now, you think, well, Because that's that's, that's what they did. Well, bear in mind that the laws concerning sacrifices didn't come in until uh, Moses and and Leviticus, particularly when the rules set down what you should offer and when you should offer it and the kind of offer it and so on. So this is obviously predates a great deal, predates the Levitical order. So that's, that's the first thing. So, you might say, well, it's obvious. Cain brings what he does, i.e. the crop, and Abel brings what he does. Yes, but have you thought of this? Abel didn't have to kill the sheep to make an offering. He could have just sheared it and bring God a big bag of wool. It's an offering. He brings his sheaves of grain or whatever, and... Abel brings his bag of wool. Why does he kill this sheep, this lamb, and bring it as an offering? And you think about it, you say, well, I've never thought about that. Well, I've been thinking about it. I think, why did he do that? Now, I'm going to suggest something to you, which is not there. All right? But I'm going to suggest it can be. And I will be cautious and I will say this. If somebody, me or anybody, says something and this is what they think that this means and this is the truth that they find there, if you can't find that truth anywhere else in the Bible, you're probably wrong. And I'm probably wrong if I can't find what I'm going to say anywhere else in the Bible. But if what I'm going to suggest to you I can find all through the Bible then it could well be that I'm right. Now, oh, you've got to think about that yourself. You're reasonable people. You could look things up. Um, I often, when there's something, mm, I'm not too sure, what, I look it up. And uh, I find somebody in whom I've got uh, great respect for, who, who knows obviously much more than I do. And my reference point for this was uh, our good friend, ours, mine, uh, Philip Eveson, who's done a commentary on Genesis. And he says something similar. I thought, well... <laughs> It's good enough for Phil, It's good enough for me, and that's to say, we not. That's not to say we are both right, but uh, you know, two witnesses and so on, um, so on. Let me, let me, let me give this to you. Who, I don't want you to ask. I don't. Ask, I don't want you to answer this. Who was the first person to sacrifice an animal? You say, well, obviously, Abel. No. The first person to sacrifice an animal was the Lord. You say, "How do you get that?" Well, you know the story: Adam and Eve sin; right? they're naked. God says, "Who told you naked?" And you know, and you know all that, right? And then we're told that God makes a covering for them, all right. God makes a covering for them from animal skins. Now. It seems reasonable to say that God slew those innocent and innocent animal, animals in order to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Now, I think we can accept that. That's to a problem. God didn't just say, abracadabra, and out they appeared, all knitted and fitted and everything. God Almighty slew an animal in order to provide a covering because of the guilt of of Adam and Eve. Now, that's a principle that will work all the way through the Bible. And eventually, the supreme example of that will be the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So you can see where I'm going with this, all right? This is not something way out there. It's actually a biblical principle of sacrifice of an innocent victim on behalf of those who are guilty. So, I suggest that Abel knew about this. I suggest that um, Cain also knew about it. Why didn't he then do what his brother did? I thought to myself, well, somebody say, well, he he just grew grew the grain. Well, yes, but surely... If he thought about it sufficiently, he could have taken a bag of grain to Abel and said, Listen, brother, um, I, I, I know we should offer sacrifices, blood sacrifices, but I haven't got any blood sacrifices at all. So let's sell me, I'll give a lot of my grain, sell me one of your, your, your lambs, your sheep, and then I can do a, a similar. He could have done that, but he didn't. Because he didn't want to because he felt that this would be sufficient. Now, again, we've got to be careful. In the Bible, Leviticus, there are several kinds of offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, and so on, peace offerings. And there is a grain offering, right? But the grain offering is a Thanksgiving offering. You can look it up for yourself if you want to. And the others are often because of sin and guilt. So whenever there's an offering for sin and guilt, it involves the shedding of blood of an innocent victim, right? That's laid down there and obviously in the New Testament fulfilled to the Lord Jesus. Cain doesn't do that. He doesn't think about it. He brings a little offering, um, a bit of grain, and this is enough, right? I'm not saying he's not grateful for what he has. He, God has blessed him in the growth of these things, but there's no sense of unworthiness. There's no sense of, I've failed. I haven't done as I should have done. I haven't lived as I should have lived. But certainly with Abel, there's a sense of, God has blessed me, and I want to be thankful, but I'm mindful of defect in me. I'm, I'm conscious that I must make a, a sacrifice. It must cost me. It must cost the life of one of my animals in order for God to accept me. Now, if you think that's stretching things, possibly. But that's the principle that comes throughout the Bible. And you, you will agree with that. That's the principle there. Innocence because of guilt. Innocent lamb shed blood for the guilty. And this is what Abel does. Now, we are told that Abel, by faith, Abel, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. God recognized his heart. God recognized that he was coming to God, believing that this sacrifice would be acceptable to God on his behalf. He brought that by faith. It appears that Cain couldn't really care less. He had no real faith that God would accept it. And it, it gives you, you get the impression he didn't care about it anyway. And when God accepts Abel's sacrifice and doesn't accept Cain's, he's a bit peeved, he's very upset, and he gets quite nasty, and he complains to God. Why have you accepted him and not mine? And it's and, and almost as if God said, well, why shouldn't I? If you understood aright who I am and who you are, then you don't realise that that is not acceptable. And the, the attitude of your heart is not right anyway. Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well and you're not accepted, sin lies at the door. There's sin in your heart. It's not that Abel is sinless. But Abel has seen that there is sin in his heart, but this is a way whereby he believes that God will accept him. Although he is a sinner, God will accept the sacrifice on his behalf. That seems to me to be the principle there in that. So Abel is accepted because by faith he's brought an offering to God. Now, there are not many references to Abel, In the rest of the Bible, um, you will know some of them, I'm sure. One of the the lovely references is, again, in Hebrews. You don't need to look this up. I'll read it to you. All right. Uh, The writer goes on to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll just give you the context. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator, all right, of the new covenant. Um, This is Hebrews 12 around verse 24, okay? And he talks about the people of God coming to God, coming to the living God. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? What does the writer mean that this blood kind of speaks uh, better things than Abel? What things did the blood of Abel speak? Well, it would appear, because this is what God says to Cain, verse 10, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. It's as if God is saying... That blood that you shed, that innocent blood you shed of Abel, that blood you shed uh, because you were angry with him and you didn't like the fact he was accepting and you win, that blood, is almost crying out to me. I can hear it crying out to me. And it would appear uh, that that blood is crying out vengeance. I want vengeance, says Abel. I've been slain for no good reason by this brother. I want vengeance to be taken on him. I want vengeance, the cry of vengeance. But the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ speaks better things because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't cry out, Vengeance! Vengeance! Jesus never prayed as he's dying on the cross Father, get, pay them back. Pay them back. Look how they treated me. Deal with them. Punish them. visit them with wrath and condemnation. Lord, sort them out. Amazingly, Jesus on the cross, in all the agony through which he's going, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that amazing? This one blood charged out for vengeance. the other could have cried for vengeance, could have said pay them back, could have said all kinds of things, but this one prays for his enemies, prays for those who are persecuted, and prays for those who have delivered him up. He prays for them that they might be forgiven. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cries for forgiveness and pardon for sinners like you and like me. That's amazing. It's amazing that the Lord Jesus should suffer so much pain and agony that such as you and such as I might be reconciled to God. And it's a biblical principle, as i already said, that there is no way for forgiveness for sin to be obtained even in the Old Testament system, but by the shedding of blood. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews will say, uh, you know the verse well, without the shedding of blood there is no remission. There had to be the shedding of blood. Innocent animals had to be slain. Now, some time ago, I mentioned to you that it's interesting when you talk about the cross of the Lord Jesus and the death of the Lord Jesus. And we know that the Lord had to die that we might live. But there are various ways of dying. There's a natural death that comes with old age, there's a death from accident or, or disease, and all kinds of ways of dying without actually shedding blood the word slain and right, that is used in connection with the lord's death he was slain the lamb that had been slain is a picture of him it means that he died a violent death he died a death that wasn't accidental it was quite deliberate and it was it was an awful death i use the word very carefully The death of the Lord Jesus was a bloody affair. It really was. And that's not because God, in some macabre way, wanted all this this terrible thing to go on. Oh, it's dreadful. And There are some people that object to we gospel preachers who talk about uh, the only way of redemption and salvation is the shedding of blood by Jesus. They don't like it. They say it's a gospel of gold. It's not nice. It's not pleasant. It's not pretty. Well, of course it's not. Of course it's not. It's not meant to be pretty. It's not nice to be not meant to be nice and lovely. It was a terrible thing. It's an awful thing. It was the worst form of capital punishment that the Romans could have imagined. It's torture. Absolute torture. For the time of being put up on the cross and the nails, and, and sometimes it would linger for one or two days. And gradually, you wouldn't be able to breathe. I Maybe mean, because of the position you were in, and you would slowly run out of breath. And that was an agonizing bit. And that's why they would break the legs to speed up the process. And the Lord went through all that. And it's a terrible,
1: terrible business.
0: And you have to say, well, well why couldn't he, he just have sort of kind of gently died? For well, two reasons. Firstly, because God is so holy. God is so righteous. God hates sin. He has a purized of evil. You to look on iniquity. God hates sin. Sin is an abhorrent to him. The descriptions of sin and unrighteousness in the Bible are horrendous. If you know the original, I don't tell you because it's very indelicate. And you think, oh, please don't tell me that. But that's what the Bible says. Horrendous. God hates sin. And God is going to punish sin. God must punish sin. There must be an outpouring of God's wrath. He must outpour his wrath. Otherwise, he's not a holy God. He's not a righteous God because he must punish sin. And throughout the Old Testament, the law of God, uh, you do this, fine, you don't do this, and then there are repercussions and there are punishments. And many of the crimes of the Old Testament are punishment by death. Because it was important to God. This is my law. You keep it, you'll be blessed. If you don't keep it, you will die. And there's some horrendous things there. Because God is a holy, righteous God. And He's got to pour out his wrath. And sin is so horrendous that it needs the wrath of God. And the law demands it. God couldn't say, you know, well, I know what I've said. But this is my son. This is my only begotten son. This is the son of my love. This is the son whom I've loved from eternity and will love to eternity. This is my son. I know he's gonna. he, He has to be punished on behalf of my people. I know that. But, but, I think I'll go gently with him. I think I'll go easy on him. It's not his fault. He isn't anything. I know he's going to die as a substitute. But I think when it comes to it, I'll go easy on him. I'll go easy on him. The father could not go easy on his son because the law demanded absolute punishment. Cursed is everyone hangs on a tree. And the Lord Jesus was cursed by the very law of his father. He was cursed as he hung on a tree. And God said, it must be so. But but Lord, he's your son. He's your son. The law has to be fulfilled. Punishment has to be meted out. And it's a dreadful business. We celebrate later on the the Lord's Supper and and what happened. And we need to remember how awful it was. Because it was the only way whereby God could satisfy the law. And then you see the the positive, the plus side is this. When God forgives a person their sins, when God accepts a person who comes to him in the name of his son, And it was covered by the blood of Christ, as we say, the righteousness of Christ, then God can do it rightly and justly. The law cannot pop up and say, ah, hold on, hold on, you want to forgive these sinners, but they're sinners. And they deserve judgment, they deserve wrath, they deserve hell. What about all the debt they've got? What about all the spiritual debt that have occurred over 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years? Look at the debt. Look at their sin accumulated. Almost heaven is full of it. The earth is full of it. You can't just forgive these people their sin. It's not right. It's not just. It's not lawful. And you are the lawgiver. and I can do it righteously I can do it justly because my son has paid the penalty he's paid the whole price I don't know if you've ever been in debt yourself or perhaps a relative of yours has and uh, it's a dreadful thing to be in debt it might be your fault might be somebody else's fault. It might be a business that have folded uh, because of your mismanagement. It might be a business folded because somebody cheated you about your, your proper uh, money or whatever. Uh, to be in debt is a dreadful thing. And not to have the means whereby to clear it. It's a dreadful thing. Or to know somebody who you, whom you love, perhaps a child, daughter, son, who's in debt and you just feel so concerned and, And perhaps you can't do anything about it. But maybe you are able and say, listen, you shouldn't have got into debt. It's your fault. But I'll write you a check. Total amount. So it'll be done. Now, without using the too silly on illustrations, God does that for all his people, every single one of them. God has it worse, that's right. You're in great debt. You can never repay it. If you lived a thousand lives, you'd never repay what you owe because of your sin. But my son has paid it totally. Isn't that great? Do you think so? I'm not sure if you do. <laughs> you are allowed to kind of nod. I'm not expecting you to jump up in the air, but you can nod. A friend of mine says, you know, one of my favorite hymns, um, When Peace Like a River. And said, My sin, not in part, but the whole. Isn't that good? Not most sins, not the worst sins. Every single sin that you've ever committed is covered by the blood of Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bearing in shame and scoffing, rude in my place, condemned he stood, stood sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a saviour! And the law can never come back at me. And the law can never say, "Well, look. Even since you were saved, even since you were, for, 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 you were forgiven, uh, that first time when you called upon the Lord and He saved you and forgave you. Look at all the things you've done wrong since. I know, I know. To my shame, I know." but the blood has covered all my sins, past, present, future, until he comes. There's not one sin that is uncovered. There's not one sin for which his blood is not atoned. Now, we need to see that, because when God calls us to have faith in the Lord Jesus, we we are called to have faith in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. You have to believe it. Now, I can understand someone saying, you know, that sounds too good to be true. Are you really telling me that all my sins are covered by the blood? Yes, I am. All the sins of all his people for all eternity, totally forgiven and cleansed. But then, as we bring this to a close, Abel had to come to God. He had to bring his offering. He had to come, and he came by faith, believing that God would accept him on behalf because of his offering. And God expects you and me to come to him and say, Lord, I want to be forgiven, I want to be cleansed, I want to be pardoned of all my wrongdoing because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross on my behalf. I don't come in my own strength. I don't come in my own righteousness. I don't come because I'm trying to be good and to be better. I come, as as, as the name says, naked. I come spiritually. I'm naked. I've got nothing to bring, nothing to offer. I've just come, and all I've got is my sin. But Jesus died for sinners, and therefore died for me. I plead with you, Lord, have mercy upon Have mercy upon me. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your love because I'm so useless and worthless left to myself. And because of this, God declared him righteous. Now bear in mind this. There are two things about righteousness. God firstly declares us righteous on the base of what Christ has done, and then he makes us righteous by the work of the Holy Spirit. There are two words that we can use. The old writers used to speak about the righteousness of Christ being imputed to the believer. That is to say... The righteousness of Christ, which is pure and perfect, if you like, and we talk about garments sometimes, right? It's like a perfect robe of righteousness, which the Lord Jesus belongs to him. It's his righteousness. He has it where exchanges his righteousness for our filthy rags. He takes our filthy rags on himself, ties on the cross. He gives us his perfect righteousness. So we, as it were, are clothed with his righteousness and have a free access to God for eternity. But there's more than that. He does more than that. It's not just a garment that we have on Sundays. We look, we go, I have my posh suit on, and and, and this is, is, I'm righteous. God has declared me righteous. He imputed righteousness to me. But God also imparts righteousness by the work of the Holy Spirit. He begins to work in me, so I don't want to do the old things I did. I may do. But I don't want to do it. it. changes my heart. It changes my direction. It changes my bias towards the things that are wrong. He gives me a bias towards the things of God. He does this work. It's a great work of transformation. And it's a working process in some of us. And it's been taking a long time. And we should be far more ahead than we are. But it's the work of God, the Spirit, which he will continue until that day. Righteousness which is imputed. Righteousness which is imparted. So a righteous man is declared righteous by God, and then he lives righteously. If a man says, I've been made righteous by Christ, but I live as I plead, his righteousness is rubbish. You cannot be declared righteous by God in God's sight because of the blood of Christ, then live as you please and do what you like. That's contrary to the whole of the Bible. When Christ makes you righteous, you seek to live righteously to his glory and to his praise. Well, let's bring this to an end. Abel, first person in this list. There'll be lots of names uh, that are uh, in this list Abram and, uh, and Noah and all kinds of people. And we look at them, uh, God willing, in the months that lie ahead. But the first one is old Abel. And we know very little about him apart from what you read in in Genesis. But Abel came with his lamb and says, this isn't my offering. It's an offering because I'm a sinner. I believe you'll accept it because that's what you did for my dad. And you killed an animal to cover his nakedness. And I've killed an animal to acknowledge that I'm unclean in your sight but I want you to accept me on the basis of this sacrifice. And we come to God tonight and say, Lord Jesus, I've got nothing to bring, but I come to you because you have died for a sinner and I'm a sinner. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We trust what we've said is in accord totally with your word and with biblical principles. Uh, we thank you for The work of the Lord Jesus Christ as an offering for sin. Uh, It's all through the Bible, and it must be so. And in the letter of the Hebrews, the writer makes much of the, the the offerings of the Old Testament. But none, none can be likened ultimately to the ultimate offering and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself an offering for sin. Our sin, my sin. Oh, that we might have faith to believe, to trust, and to come to Him and acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Now, the same um, again in the repentance, faith, and justification section of our hymn book by Horatius Bona, 549. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. 549. you <laughs> So, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house on your day. We thank you for your word. We pray to bless it to our hearts, to our lives, as we leave this place tonight. As we think about these things through the week, we pray, Lord, now you bless us as we come to the table, the table of the Lord Jesus. This is the Lord's Supper, and we come to remember Him. We thank you for His body given, broken for us. We thank you for His shed blood, given, offered for us and for our sins. We thank you for our Savior. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.